This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Schizophrenia and Psychosis Action Alliance, shattering barriers to treatment, survival, and recovery. People with schizophrenia can recover and thrive. More at WeCanThrive.org. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Lately, Audrey Rowe has been a bit preoccupied with a girl named Elma. Well, Elma is her nickname. Short for Elma Ujaya. It's a name given to her by the Healy Lake Village Council, the Mendes Chaig people, a tribe native to interior Alaska. The way that they translate it is hella looking. It's a name that's given affectionately towards things that are interesting looking, but not necessarily beautiful. So it's like a name for like your ugly pet dog, for example. How do you know my dog's ugly and hella looking? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> it's true. Audrey's a paleoecologist and PhD candidate at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And she's been studying Elma's tusk because Elma is a woolly mammoth. So Elma lived about 14,000 years ago. And her tusk was found at one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uncontroversial archaeological sites in Alaska. Uncontroversial because there's no dispute that humans were present there too. The site is littered with human tools. And this is interesting because as far as we know, humans only overlapped with woolly mammoths in interior Alaska for about a thousand years. Somewhere in that 1,000-year period, Elma lived and died. Audrey's now studying data from Elma's tusk to track the massive 1,000-kilometer journey she and her herd took through Alaska and northwestern Canada, and she's hoping to figure out just what did Elma in. Everyone always wants to know, is it the humans that did them in or not? (laughs) Humans are to blame for plenty of extinctions around the planet, but this area has an extra little little twist, which is that this was the time of great change um, in terms of the habitat itself. That's right. There could be another culprit, the end of the Ice Age. 14,000 years ago, Alaska was rapidly changing. Things were getting warmer, things were getting wetter, and that would have allowed trees and shrubs to start migrating in a little bit, creeping in in um, some, some of the moister areas like riverbeds. The habitat was changing in a way that mammoths like Elma just weren't built for. And humans were starting to pop up in the area as well. So it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. Like, are they there because you've got tons of mammoths? Did the mammoths go extinct because humans were hunting them? Or is it the other way around? Were humans able to penetrate this area because it was getting warmer, wetter, just more hospitable to humans? Right. Because eventually, I mean, like, mammoths, right, go extinct. Eventually, mammoths do go extinct, yeah. And not, not too long after this period, actually, in interior Alaska. Today on the show, we trace Elma's grand life and journey through a single tusk. And we take our best guesses at who or what killed her. I'm Nate Rott. You're listening to Shortwave, the science podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? 
Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. Okay, Audrey, let's talk about our girl Alma. Where did she live? Like, what was, what was she about? What was she about? Yeah. From our movement studies, we found that she was born somewhere in what is today the Western Yukon, sort of on the edge of where she really could have lived because there were ice sheets guarding interior North America at that time. There was the Cordilleran ice sheet and the Laurentide ice sheet. She spent about a decade wandering around and then about halfway through her life, she underwent a long movement westward for about two years of her life, traversing all the way to interior Alaska, where she spent the rest of her life and mysteriously died, even though she, as far as we know, was pretty healthy, according to the chemicals in her tusk. And she was at the peak of health in terms of um, her age, too. So she was about 20 years old. I like to think of uh, mammoth timelines as being sort of similar to humans. So they mature at around 15 years of age, kind of like humans, you know, puberty. It took me a little longer, but yeah, right around that. <laughs> More or less. Yeah. But my advisor did a similar study of a 30-year-old male mammoth. He underwent a lot larger movements, especially after the age of 15 or so, after puberty. So from that, we're starting to infer from these two studies that mammoth movements and structure of behavior would have been similar to modern elephants. So today, modern elephants live in matriarchal herds, at least the females do. Whereas when modern male elephants go through puberty, basically, they're kicked out of the matriarchal herd. They wander on their own trying to find mates in different herds. And they just move around a lot more. Huh, okay. When I was reading some of your study, I was wondering, is like, is it normal for a mammoth to move that much? Or, I mean, was Elma just kind of having like a hot girl summer? You know, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, it is. It does seem kind of strange, this two-year movement pattern. She does not return to where she was. Uh, we can only infer things. We, we can never know why she and presumably her herd decided to take this long movement westward. Um, And so what we infer is that maybe resources started to dry up in the Yukon and they went out looking literally for greener pastures and found them in Alaska. Tail as old as time. Always looking. Grass is always greener on the other side of the ice sheets. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you learn all this information? I mean, how did you, how were you able to, to infer and figure out her movements and everything, given that she died 14,000 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. So elephant and mammoth tusks 
kind of grow like stacked ice cream cones. It's like every day a new layer is added, a new cone is added to the top of the the, the stack. And as they're building this stack, each day they're laying down material from the nutrients that they ate. As they're walking around, they're picking up basically bits of their environment from, from the food they're eating, from the water they're drinking, and then laying it down in this permanent record that is their tusk. So we split open the tusk, and we analyzed the isotopes all the way from the tip, which would have been close to birth, to the end of the tusk, closest to the mouth. And that, that end of the tusk would have been really close to, if not the day of her death. Whoa. Yeah, so by doing this isotope analysis along that whole length, um, we learn a lot about location she was in because you are what you eat and your food has a signature of where you were when you ate it. And we learn a lot about her nutrition. So we know that uh, we, we know she didn't starve to death. That's for certain. Cool. All right. So I, I'm curious about this tusk thing because it, I mean, I, it almost reminds me of like dendrochronology, right? How we like can bore into a tree and learn something from all the different rings. So it's kind of the same. You basically can look through this almost like history of the of the mammoth, right? By just looking at these layers uh, that stack up on the tusk. Yes, exactly. Cool. That's, you can learn a lot from a tooth. Yes, I love huh. it. <laughs> you mentioned that Elma was roughly 20, right? She'd just gotten out of her like teenage mm-hmm. years. Yeah. But she was totally healthy when she passed away. So how did she die? Yeah. We can't rule out like some sudden disease that hit her really fast and knocked her down. There's no smoking gun at Swan Point. In in Europe, in Siberia, there's a couple examples of like almost literal smoking guns where you have human tools embedded in mammoth vertebra or ribs or whatever. Clear evidence of, of human hunting. We don't have anything like that in Alaska, but we have means and motive. So the exact same types of tools that were used in Siberia are the ones that were found in the Swan Point site in Alaska. It's very good evidence that the same people who lived in the Asian side of Beringia walked over and then lived in Alaska in short order and before their tool culture had time to change. We can't for sure say that Elma was hunted, but there's a lot of evidence that it was possible and that it was desirable. Yeah. Would have been a big package of meat for them. Her tusk was actually used as a tool itself. Oh, wow. Um, So a piece of it was removed. And there are a lot of indentations on the outside of the tusk, which means that it was probably used as an anvil just to hit objects against it. Whoa, interesting. So it's not only just, you're not just potentially killing a woolly mammoth because you want to eat. It's also that you want to be able to use the tusk, for example, as a tool. Right. Yeah, ivory was a super useful material. Huh. Okay, so you can't definitely say, like, you're not going to run in a murder conviction for humans, right, on this. But is there another contender? Is there another thing that you suspect could have killed Elma? Well, adult mammoths didn't have really many viable predators. I mean, that's the whole point of being big. You see this evolution of large herbivores throughout Earth history is just herbivores grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're just outgrowing their hunters. How does she, how does her story and kind of what you've learned from her, 
How does that weigh into this bigger debate about whether or not it was humans versus climate change that kind of eventually led to the demise of woolly mammoths in North America and across the world? Yeah, a lot of large megafauna would have been suffering because of the Holocene, because of the climate changes that happened. The bigger ones that just take so much longer to reproduce, especially. I mean, like I said, mammoths don't hit puberty until 15-ish. Yeah. And their um, gestation period is 22 months. Holy moly. Whoa. Right. Yeah. So if they suffer losses, they don't recover in a hurry. If you look at what survived the Pleistocene into the Holocene in interior Alaska, there's some really interesting similarities between what survived. So Alaska used to have horses, right? Not anymore. Um, Alaska used to have uh, saiga, which are these like little antelopes that still exist in like Mongolia, yeah. the steppe of Eurasia. Uh-huh. Those are both grazers. And the things that do survive are things like moose and caribou, which are browsers, which means that they eat like twigs and things, not, not grass. Um, that's part of the reason why I always say that mammoths probably wouldn't be able to live on this in this habitat today. But humans helped, probably. So we don't have an answer to this large, gaping kind of... It's a complicated story. No, there's no singular answer. Yeah. Can I ask a question that just, like, I I always... I work on climate change usually, and I ask this all the time, right? But, like, why does it matter today that we have an answer to what happened to Elma and to woolly mammoths in interior Alaska? Well, a lot of conservationists are seeing this on their own, that the animals that they're trying to um, keep alive today but is most difficult is larger animals like you know uh, white rhinos yeah so i think studies like this are just evidence of that happening throughout earth history kind of informing us of where we're going by looking into the past yeah that's super cool well audrey i am very into the story of elma i'm very into the idea that Woolly mammoth tusks are just like a big stack of ice cream cones. I will never look at a tusk <laughs> the same way again without thinking about that. Thank you, Audrey. It's good to meet you. Bye. Before we head out, a quick shout out to our Shortwave Plus listeners. We appreciate you and we thank you for being a subscriber. Shortwave Plus helps support our show, and if you're a regular listener, we'd love for you to join us so you can enjoy the show without sponsor interruptions. Find out more at plus.npr.org slash shortwave. This episode was produced by Margaret Serino and edited by our showrunner, Rebecca Ramirez. It was fact-checked by Britt Hansen. Gilly Moon was the audio engineer. I'm Nate Rott. Thank you for listening to Shortwave from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Indeed. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Get a $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com slash shortwave. Terms and conditions apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. 
What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. 